Well, we're continuing in this series that's um, very personal. It's about each of our stories. And each and every one of us has a story. And the intention and the desire of God, our creator, is that part of that story of our lives, and that's what I mean by story, our entire life journey, is that it would have a point in it where we choose to put our trust back in our creator, become his follower, and live according to the way that he created us to live. And so we've urged you to um, consider writing out your own story. And we gave you a little outline, real simple, and it's basically just this, you know, life before, or, or my life before Christ, and then how I came to trust Christ, and then my life since trusting Christ. So um, we didn't say this before, but you can, you can do these anonymously, but we're hoping you'll actually bring these in, do it over the time. We, we want to put some of them on the wall outside. We'd love to get your permission to read some as well, you know, from uh, the stage each week. But you need to do this, in my opinion, for yourself. I, I think for you to take the time to write this out, even some of you that hate doing things like this, it will clarify for yourself your own experience, your own story to a place that will give you a lot of confidence, a lot of security. And let me just tell you something else. If you can put your story into, you know, 100 words or a few more than that, uh, you will be able to share your story very comfortably and easily with someone else. You might even be able to take the written form and say, you know, I'm not saying this is for everybody, but here's what my, my story is, and this is why I follow Christ. It is a powerful thing. You will actually reach some people uh, just by sharing your story. We're going to look at stories in the Bible. I mean, that's what this series is about, where we have people's stories when they reconnected with Christ, their creator. So we've got an overarching passage that I wanted to use through this entire series. It's from a New Testament book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writing to followers of Christ, living in a Greek city called Colossae. And he's speaking about Christ. He says, for by him, the him is Christ, for by him were all things created. So here clearly it says Christ is the creator of everything, of the universe. What does the Bible say in the beginning? In the beginning God created. Well, now we find out it's Christ. For by him were all things created, which are in heaven and which are in earth, Things visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And then the second part is really important. And what does it say? You've got to personalize that. I've got to personalize that. You and I were made for Christ. You're never fully human and never fully alive. I'm never fully human, never fully alive. I'll never have all my dormant capacities come alive until... I reconnect with Christ, my creator. And that, that connection is one in which I trust him. I want to learn his ways, the way he designed me to live. And then I follow through on those. It goes on to say this in that same passage. In verse 17, it says, Christ existed before all things. And in union with him, all things have their what? Proper place. I'll find my proper place. You'll find your proper place in union with him. Our lives find order when we order our lives the way his word lays out uh, the way he designed us to live. So to start today, I'm going to read you a story. We read one last week, too. And this one is not by somebody from FCF, but it's by uh, a guy that's rather well-known in some Christian circles. Some of you may or may not be familiar with him, but his name is Josh McDowell, and I'll start the story. He said, My life growing up was a struggle. When I walked into college, I carried a heavy burden of years of hurt and bitterness. I was mad at my father for beating my mother. 
I was angry at a man who worked on our farm for sexually abusing me from ages 6 to 13. All of this led me to be, excuse me, all this led me to really despise God, religion, and anything to do with church. I was the last person in the world who you would expect to become a Christian. When some young believing students at college challenged me to investigate the evidence for Christianity intellectually, I was shocked. Specifically, they challenged me to investigate the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. I thought it was some kind of joke. In fact, I thought that would be easy to marshal evidence to disprove the claims of Christ. Since I like a good challenge, I accepted the offer. I left the university and I traveled across the United States, Europe, and the Middle East to study ancient manuscripts and gather evidence against Christianity. After months of study, I returned to a small library in England I leaned back in my chair, cupped my hands on the back of my head, and I said, it's true. It's really true. I returned to the university, and I couldn't sleep. The evidence for Christianity was stronger than all the years of my pain and skepticism that kept me from believing. I knew that if I was going to be honest, I could not remain a skeptic. The historical evidence really indicated that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Needless to say, my research had taken quite an unexpected turn. I set out to disprove the historical resurrection of Jesus, but ended up becoming a follower of Christ. I first published my research in 1972 in the book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which has since been printed over 4 million times in 44 languages. The historical evidence for Christianity today is like a tsunami, and yet the amount of evidence we have engulfs the kind that led me to believe in Christ over five decades ago. My challenge for you is to consider the evidence for yourself. The evidence is there if you're willing to consider it. After 50 years of studying it, I can tell you this tsunami has not let up. So here is Josh McDowell's story, and I'm just curious, how many of you are familiar with that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Uh, I had read it umpteen years back. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, and if you are one that struggles with... Um, evidences and is there substantive reason to believe that the Christian story is a true story I would urge you to get this book study it research it it's a very very powerful book so you can see he told his life before how he struggled with a, with his father with being abused sexually and all like that you, you can see the story of how he came to Christ he was challenged by fellow college students and then his life afterward you know he's been serving Christ all these years um, prolific writer and speaker as well so please this week personalize this take the time sit down and write your story it might be one of the most powerful experiences you ever have it might serve you for many years to come it'll certainly clarify some things for yourself all right well let's turn to a story from scripture today if you don't mind turning to Luke chapter 5 and that'll be page 1163 Luke chapter 5 page 1163 and we're going to read Luke 5 verse 17 through 26 and it's a simple story about a man who was so helpless till he met Christ. Luke 5, page 1163. It starts in verse 17. Now, on one of those days, while he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby. Pharisees were the kind of rigid, legalistic, conservative religious leaders of his day who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then, some men showed up 
carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. Mark chapter 2, verse 3 says there was four men carrying this friend of theirs who was paralyzed. So there's five men altogether. So it says they were trying to bring him and place him before Jesus, but since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, roof and they let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. How many of you know if that had been your roof, the story might have read a little differently. <laughs> we don't know what the owner of the home said, but verse 20. When Jesus saw, notice what it says, their faith. Who's he talking about? Their trust, their confidence, their reliance. He's talking about the four friends and the paralyzed individual. Evidently, they had heard enough about Jesus and his teaching and his healings that they already trusted in him. And they were coming with confidence that their friend could get his life restored, that he would go from being helpless to being fully empowered if they could get him to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the experts in the law and the Pharisees, and that is the Old Testament law, don't be confused there. Then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They didn't understand. That's exactly who was standing in front of them. When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, Why are you raising objections within yourselves? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take up your stretcher, and go home. Impossible and cruel commands for one paralyzed, unless you're going to give the power to follow them through. That'll be important later on. Immediately he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them, all, seized them all, and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, We have seen incredible things today. So it's a simple story of a man who goes from being so helpless, I mean paralyzed, unable to do anything, dependent upon other people for the slightest thing. And he goes from being paralyzed to being fully empowered to live life the way that God designed him to live. Now, the thing that I find interesting about this, the guy is paralyzed. They let him through the roof, obviously, because they wanted to see their friend healed to get his life back, so to speak. But the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is kind of unusual. He looks at this paralyzed guy, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, why would he say that to the guy? The guy's paralyzed. He wants to be healed. Jesus certainly knows this. Why would he say, son, your sins are forgiven? I mean, could it be that this paralyzed guy was like a notorious sinner all over the area that they were in. I mean, did everybody know this was an extra, extra bad guy? Is that why Jesus said it? We don't know. Could, could it be that the religious leaders and their teaching of the day had convinced this paralyzed guy that the reason he was paralyzed is because he was being punished and cursed of God? It was because of his sinfulness that he was paralyzed. Could that be the reason Jesus said it? Maybe it's this. Maybe this guy... Maybe this guy was an awful lot like a lot of us. It wasn't that he was such a notorious sinner. It wasn't that he was such an outrageous sinner. Maybe, Mo, maybe though, he, he had a certain set of sins or certain occurrences, sinful occurrences in his life that somehow he just could never feel, feel, emphasizing that, were forgivable. And I don't think that's an uncommon experience. I, I suspect quite highly that 
some of us, if not a lot of us in this room, even though we understand all about God being forgiving and Christ dying on the cross sacrificially to let us know for certainty that there is forgiveness offered to us, I think that many of us probably have insufficiently resolved some guilt in our life. And maybe this man, that was his case. And so Jesus, the first thing, he looks at him and he says, Hey, son, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, the religious leaders are around him. They get outraged at this because they've already made up their mind. They don't accept that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the personification of God in human flesh. They've made up their mind. They don't like Jesus. He's stealing their glory. He's defying their teachings because he's telling the truth about God and the truth about life. And they're just t- saying things that they've learned from one rabbi to another to another. And so Jesus, in order to show that he absolutely had the authority to do what only God can do, to forgive sins, to enable us to sufficiently resolve our sin problem and our guilt, he tells this guy, son, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, what if he, the story would have just ended there? Um, that would have been plenty. But he says to the religious leaders, he says, listen, if you don't think that I have the power or the authority to forgive sins, which is easier, to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, a paralyzed man, rise up and walk. Pick up your stretcher and walk. And to show that he had the authority, he does it. Now, let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question. Jesus tells this guy his sins are forgiven. Had Jesus already gone to the cross and died on the cross for the man, for his sins? Had that happened? It's not a trick question. It's obvious, right? Of course not. He was alive. If he was on the cross, he could have been saying to the guy, your sins are forgiven. What is the point in that? Why am I emphasizing that? The point I'm trying to emphasize is that God is always forgiving. He just wants us to understand that sin is something that rips us to pieces. It destroys us. So God is caught in this difficult place where he has to give us a sufficient deterrent to continue to do destructive things and live destructively. But at the same time, his arms are open wide. He's forgiving before Anything he's forgiving wants us to know, I love you, I'm for you, I forgive you, there's no barrier on my side. I just need you to trust me so that I can show you the way you're designed to live, so that I can deliver you from constant, frustrating, self-destroying acts and sort of habits in your life. But God is already forgiving. And so the people of Jesus' day, and I think people today need to understand, because we've even gotten into this kind of judicial legalistic thing in church world where it's like, okay, well, Jesus had to go and take the punishment for each and every one of our sins. He, like, endured hell, the, 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 you know, hell for each and every one of us before God was allowed to forgive us. This is nonsensical. Uh, the Scripture doesn't support this. Judicially, God has some things to prove. He has to show that he's consistent, he's trustworthy, his laws are a necessity, they're not arbitrary. He has to create a deterrent so that we don't foolishly take forgiveness lightly and think that we can go on living destructively. But God is forgiving, and he's he's balancing the scales of justice in the minds of angels and humans. But this notion that God can't forgive until some kind of a penalty thing has been paid, that's really not supportable by deeper study of Scripture, and it's not important. So Jesus tells this guy that he's forgiven. Could it be that the real issue was this? This guy was paralyzed physically, obviously, but paralyzed inwardly, not as obviously, by guilt and by fear. And I believe there's strong evidence for that. Because the thing about you and I as human beings made in the image of God, we can't handle it. We can't handle guilt that is not sufficiently dealt with. It's not sufficiently resolved. It's the way we're designed. We're made in the image of God. We're very finely tuned, and we can't deal with guilt. It paralyzes us. It 
penetrates so deeply that we can't experience joy. We can't experience peace. We really can't experience love. We're too self-absorbed. When we are guilty, we're all about survival. We're all about eking out any little bit of pleasure we can to distract us. And so we're really not available to love, not in God's kind of way anyway. So we're incapacitated. We're paralyzed in a lot of ways. We're also paralyzed to do the things God asks every human to do, to live the way he designed us until our guilt and our fear of God is sufficiently removed. Listen to something interesting. This is from uh, National Public Radio. There's a um, certain condition they, they call HSAM, Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory. There's about 55 people in the United States that have it. And what it is, you could talk to these people and you could say, hey, look, what happened 15 years ago on this very day at this very time? And they could tell you exactly what they were doing, what was going on around them, what the weather was like. They have perfect recall um, now, the downside of this, one interviewee in the NPR report says that he remembers all the wrongs he has ever committed. You ever notice, you ever notice how easy it is to forget the right things that we do and how hard it is to forget the wrong things that we do? It, it seems like the way God's designed us that we almost have this whether we like it or not, this ability to remember the faults, the failures, the things God calls sin in our life. We have a hard time suppressing them. We try to change our mood. We try to, you know, uh, distract ourselves with various things. We try to blame other people for what happened. We try to drive it out of our memory, but it always tends to be there below the surface, still leaking out its poison in our souls. Another interesting thing from Ira Glass of NPR, he had this comment. He says, some regrets just Never go away. To some of you right now, I'll include myself, we all have them. Regrets that though we even know God forgives, we don't quite forget them. Some regrets just never go away. People tell us they forgive us. We try to forgive ourselves. That's the hardest thing for some. And we still know we did wrong. We hurt somebody. It was real. And that feeling, it can, what is the word? Immobilize or paralyzed. I think Jesus said what he said to this guy for a number of reasons to show that God is forgiving, to show that the religious leaders were depicting God in a false way, to show that he himself was God incarnate in human form, but he was also speaking to this guy's paralysis. He was immobilized, I think, by guilt. And guilt and fear always run together. You remember in the, in the early chapters of Genesis, first of all, you know, Adam and Eve had this wonderful relationship with God. He'd come in the garden. They'd meet with him, talk to him. He'd teach him. It was warm. It was probably the highlight of their day. And then when they broke trust with him, they did the one thing. The one thing he said, don't do. They broke trust. Then they hear the voice of God coming in the garden. In Genesis 3, you can read it. They, they run. They hide. And Adam tells the Lord, he says, I, I was afraid, and so I hid. Guilt will make us be afraid of God. And also when we don't trust God, we're afraid of him because he's an almighty being. And it's really hard to relate to an almighty, infinite being when we are finite and vulnerable. It's an uncomfortable thing unless we know that infinite, uh, almighty being is utterly, sacrificially devoted to us in love and is the safest person in the universe for us to be around. But once we don't have that lodged in our soul, well, fear and guilt work together and they have a way of penetrating deeply and poisoning us. And we can't ever quite get rid of it. And I think that's the reason Jesus first told this guy, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, he was completely disabled before he met Christ. But maybe some of us are disabled even though we've kind of met Christ. Uh, I found through the years that's not an unusual thing to find amongst those that would 
identify themselves as Christians. This is a passage of scripture written by the Apostle Paul to followers of Christ living in Rome. And uh, that's not the one I want in Rome. Uh, it's not the one I want. You're way too far. Can we go back to Romans 7? <laughs> I hope. There. Man, we jumped three. You're trying to rush me on. See, they told me I took too long in their first service. So they skipped ahead like three beats already. <laughs> and Kelly kind of rubbed it in on me. Do you know you were, I'm going to tell the time because then you'll get freaked out. Um, <laughs> but he's writing to people that would identify themselves as Christians. Now listen to this because you're going to say, hey, yeah, yeah, I kind of identify with that experience maybe. He says, I'm a mystery to myself for I want to do what is right but end up doing what my moral instincts condemn. For I know that nothing good lives within the flesh of my fallen humanity. The longings to do what is right are within me, but willpower is not enough to accomplish it. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things I want to avoid. What an agonizing situation I am in. So who has the power to rescue this miserable man from the unwelcome intruder of sin and death? Now, this has been sort of taught as being a normal Christian experience that we, we want to do God's will. We want to live according to his word, but man, we just can't, you know, we, we just find ourselves doing just the opposite again and again and again. And this has been depicted as being normal. It's not normal at all. You've got to get into Romans chapter 8, and then he starts talking about what's normal, and it talks about overcoming the power of sin, freedom from sin, li living by the power of the Spirit. But at the heart of it is this. The reason that the person was failing so miserably in the Romans 7 is they had an insufficient, an insufficient picture of God and they were still driven by legalistic fear and guilt. Anytime a person has an absorbed that God is for you, he forgives your sins, he loves you. He wants nothing but to bless you and do good. Until you come to a place where you trust him entirely, we're all more or less, we tend to fall back on fearing God and trying to do some things to appease him, trying to do some things to please him, do some things to get him on our side and off our back. And that will put you in that cycle where you don't have the power to carry out the will of God that you want to do. And so you, you're in this terrible back and forth thing, back and forth thing. That's not normal Christianity. When a person has resolved these issues sufficiently, there's Romans 8. And Romans 8 talks about power to live in line with God's willing word. This man was incapacitated. He was paralyzed. He could not live according to the way God designed him. But when Jesus healed him, he told him to do something impossible. He tells a paralyzed man, it's either really cruel or you're going to give this guy the power to do what you say. He says, get up, take up your stretcher and walk. Jesus' word, his command was given to a guy. It was an impossible command. But because the guy trusted Christ, he was able to do it. As long as fear, listen to me, I know my own soul about this. As long as there's the slightest residual fear of God in your soul or mind, or unresolved or insufficiently resolved guilt, we're going to be a little bit legalistic, and you won't have the power to live in accordance with God's word. You'll want to, but you won't be able to. The, the fear and the guilt it deprives you of the necessary power. I'm going to develop that really clearly in another part in this message. But for now, just kind of tuck it away. So this kind of a, a experience of being disabled, it comes from lacking clarity about Christ and about his plan to restore us to be beings that can walk in accordance with God's word and will. There's a guy named David Brooks. He's a, a journalist for the New York Times. 
And he has an interesting assessment of conditions today. He says, religion may be in retreat, but guilt, guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Worse, people have a sense of guilt, but no formula for redemption. And that's true of masses of people today all around the world. Now contrast that, which is a rather gloomy outlook, with this statement from 2 Corinthians. Paul writing to followers of Christ living in Corinth. He says, God was in Christ. Remember, Jesus is God in flesh, God incarnate. God was in Christ. He was working through Christ to bring the whole world, what? Back to himself. What does that mean? It's, it's the word reconciliation, back to himself, back to that place that Adam and Eve had before they distrusted God, where because they trusted God and trusted in his love, they did exactly what he said all the time. Listen, obedience to God, it's not just something arbitrary. It's the only way that life can ever work. It's the only way that eternal life can ever be. So God's trying to bring everybody back to a trusting relationship with himself. That's meant to be a part of everyone's story. At some point in our life, we say, I'm going to return to my creator because I trust him, and I'm going to follow his ways because I know they are for my good. Bring the whole world back to himself. God no longer held men's what? Sins against them. He no longer, no longer is holding anybody's sins against them. And he gave us the work, your work, my work, of telling and showing men this. We're to be telling and showing people that God loves you. He forgives you. He's for you. He's not holding trespasses or sins against you. He just wants you to be willing to return back to himself. You're going to destroy yourself if you don't. There is no other way that life works. We're made by Christ and for Christ. And apart from him, we never find our proper order. We're not living according to the laws of our being. That's to be our message. So that's a very positive message. The guy goes from being completely disabled before Christ to being fully empowered after Christ. Now, Here's where I want to take you a little bit deeper into something that I think is critically important. Here's a verse from Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. This is Jesus talking. It's a real simple verse. It's awfully hard to misunderstand it. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are, what is the word? Converted. Now, you might not be real sure what that means, but trust, we're going to open that up for you. Unless you are converted and become like, what? Children. We understand that. Children are humble and teachable and you know they need to learn everything so unless you become like children you will not enter what the kingdom of heaven that's pretty clear you know i mean i don't know what else jesus could do to make it clear if you and i want to enter into the rule of god god's eternal rule where there's no sickness sorrow pain death no hatred no disease nothing like that and live eternally under the loving lordship of jesus if we want to enter in with full forgiveness well then we've got to be converted but I know some of you are not exactly sure what that word means. You kind of think you know, but you're not sure what it means. And I know why you're not sure, because it's rarely, it's rarely treated fairly and unpacked, unfortunately, in churches. And so bear with me, and I'm going to try to do that for you. Here's, here's what we mean by conversion. The components of conversion, they are not taught today, and I don't understand it. The first one is authentic attraction. We have people believing they are members of the kingdom of God, that they're going to enter into heaven at death, and they don't even like Jesus. They don't even like God. They don't even like his will. They, they try to always avoid God, avoid his will and word, but they sure want to go to what they call heaven at the end of life. But that's not conversion. Our conversion is this, I see in Jesus, I see God, and I like him. I want to be like him. I'm drawn to him. I'm attracted to Jesus. I want to be like him. Conversion's first component is genuine attraction to Jesus, his character. Not so much his power, but that too. 
The second part of real conversion is settled convictions. I have settled convictions that Jesus, God in flesh, is absolutely trustworthy. I don't care what befalls me in life. He has proven to me that he is trustworthy. I will follow him fully. I follow him freely, and I'll follow him forever. I have convictions. I also have convictions that I've learned from Jesus that sin in any form, anything that God calls sin, it's just sand in my internal machinery and sand in the internal machinery of society. It's destructive. I have convictions i know that's true sin in any and every form solid convictions therefore i'm out of the darkness about god's character and sin i'm in the light i want to please god i want to do what is righteous settled convictions third part of conversion humble teachability remember you must become like a little child Humble teachability, the, the key factor that you can see in a real convert is they are eager. They are eager to, to find out what does my God who loves me and wants what's best for me, what does he say in his word? How does he want me to live? I want to learn his teaching. And then the follow-up of just learning his teaching is this, ongoing, what is the word? Life change. The real convert doesn't just learn God's way for life. The real convert puts it into practice. Anything short of this, folks, anything short of this, it is fake conversion. It falls short of being a Christian. I don't know how to make this clear. And the reason that some of us are still paralyzed and we can't do the will of God, we can't do the word of God, we're in this cycle, we can do it, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can, sometimes we can and can't, and our habits still bind us and we're not overcoming our habits and our addictions and our strongholds and our hangups. I'm not saying that these things don't require time and struggle and battle. We're to put off our old self and put on our new self, but we are to be empowered to do this and we're to, we're to overcome, we're to be overcomers. And the reason that some never grow, never get anywhere, is they're, they're not born again, they're not converted. We, we, have, we have played fast and loose with this notion. You pray a little prayer, you know, to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, come into my heart. Make me a new person. And we think that's conversion. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people do that, and they sincerely are attracted. They sincerely do have convictions. They are humble and teachable. They are going to make ongoing life change. So, so they're going to trust Christ no matter what. But we've treated this loosely, and we have churches full of people who think they're going to heaven and they don't even like God. They don't even like his law. They don't even like his word or will. This is craziness. And they never grow. They never change. Their lives are no different than those that are, that are non-believers. So, so we need to take this thing real seriously. We're paralyzed to live the way God designed us as well as experience peace and joy and love, authentic love, until uh, we are truly converted. And that releases a lot of power. Listen to the difference in Romans 6 compared to Romans 7. Romans 6, Paul writing to followers of Christ in, in Rome, he says, Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, then the one of whom you are obeying, you are slaves, whether of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to being made righteous. He's giving this picture, he's saying if you're attracted, you're kind of becoming a willful slave, a willful servant to someone, you're attracted to sin, you're going to become a slave of sin. Because you love it, you enjoy it, it's spice of life, that kind of thing. He says, on the other hand, if you become a slave of righteousness, you will become righteous. He goes on. By God's grace, you were once, past tense, slaves to sin. But you obeyed from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you were exposed. And after you had been set free from, what does it say? This is normal Christian life. And it doesn't say set free from the penalty of sin. Don't you read that in there? It's talking about Set, being set free from the power of sin. Real conversion does that. Real spiritual growth, Christian growth does that. 
And after you've been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm attracted to righteousness. I love it for its own intrinsic worth. I take heaven and hell out of the equation altogether. I love Jesus. I want to be like him. I love righteousness. I see its value and worth. It is the only way that life can work on this planet and certainly in eternity to come. It says the person that's a slave of righteousness who's attracted to it, loves it, convinced of its worth, sin will not have authority or power or dominion over you. Notice that. It won't. It will be broken. You won't be in that Romans 7 because you are not under, what is the word? legalism but under grace what what is legalism well legalism is you're trying to keep the law of God that's got nothing to do with it legalism is what every single religion in the world is except for reconciliatory Christianity legalism every religion is the same whether it's Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism it is human beings trying to figure out what do we have to do to appease the deity or deities What, what do we have to do to Get them on our side to bless us instead of cursing us. And this is legalistic. It's driven by fear. It's driven by self-preservation. It's driven by self-gratification. It will not transform you sufficiently inside so that you have the power to obey God. And you can be a Christian and do that too. You can still be serving God out of legalism. You don't really like him. You're a little bit scared of him. You're not really sure he can be trusted. But you want to find out what is the formula that I can make sure he'll bless me and not curse me. And you won't have the power to align your life with God's word and will because you're still driven by fear and by guilt. How many of you, this will make sense to you, how many of you use love, 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 hanging out with people that you're actually afraid of? You're scared of them. How many just love hanging out with you? Yeah, we, we know it's ridiculous, right? We avoid people like that. How many of you just love people that as soon as you get around them, they know how to push your buttons and make you feel guilty? How many, how many can I see the hands of those who just love being around people that make you feel guilty? How many of you avoid people that make you feel guilty? Can I see your hands? Yeah. It's the same with God. If we think, if we don't understand that God's already forgiving, nothing we've done surprises him or shocks him, that he loves us, he wants us, he just wants us to return and trust, as long as there's that looming fear that there's some part of us that's not forgivable and that there's something about him we, we can't be sure of, we're not going to have the power to live with you. I know some of you think, you say, but Randy, what about the fear of the Lord? The Old Testament talks about the fear of the Lord. You know what? This is a total misunderstanding. It's talking about giving God, the creator, the supreme reverence. It has nothing to do with quaking fear like I can't trust him. He's almighty and powerful, but I don't know if he's all good and safe to be around. Until you and I are convinced that he is absolutely the safest person in the universe to be around, we'll we'll have a power deficit to carry out his will on earth. It's an interesting study done some years ago in a little teeny place up in Vermont, small town. A guy named Roger Hart did the study in 1975. And he surveyed a bunch of kids from age 5 to, I think, 10 or 11. And he asked them a simple question. He says, what, what are your boundaries? You know, how far do your parents let you go to play? And what he found in this little town of Vermont in 1975 is most of the kids, they had the whole run of the neighborhood and all the ones that were like 10 and 11, they had run of the whole town. And the parents were never afraid. Little 5-year-old kids, the whole run of the whole, whole neighborhood. I'm just curious. Well, I'm telling you, now I was brought up by wolves, but I could go anywhere I wanted at any age. I mean, I, I had no restraints. How many of you, when you were kids, you could go all over the neighborhood? Just curious. This doesn't mean your parents were bad. <laughs> Mine were. Yours don't have to be. <laughs> um, so it's 1975. He goes back and he does the same study in 2014. Ask the kids, what are your boundaries? <laughs> it wasn't hard. My yard. My yard. is. My, it didn't matter how old they were. And in fact, if they were older... 
my parents want to know where I'm at all the time and what I'm doing. <laughs> Some of you, that, that's you. I'm not saying it's bad. You know, you got, you got a kid that you got to keep a tight leash. Go ahead, tighten that leash. But here's what the point was to the study. Crime in this particular tiny Vermont town had not changed at all from 75 to 2014. But fear now had smothered the lives of the kids in this community. And my point is this, fear. If you still have any residual fear, any unresolved or is insufficiently resolved guilt looming in your soul, I promise you, I promise you, it's going to take your freedom away. It's going to steal your joy. It's going to steal your peace. And you're going to be hindered to really know how to love because love means I'm full inside and I have something to give. I don't need anything from you. So, 1 John kind of summarizes this condition that God wants us to be in. Uh, if you read 1 John 4, the whole, whole verses before it are all about God's love. It says there's no fear, look at that, no fear in love. On the contrary, love that has achieved its goal gets rid of what? God wants his perfect love to drive out our fear because fear has to do with punishment. The person who keeps fearing has not been brought to maturity in regard to love. We ourselves love now because he has first what? Loved us. So this is, this is the internal condition that God is trying to bring us to, and that's the condition that takes us from being paralyzed and incapacitated to live the way we're designed according to God's will to being empowered and actually able to live that way. All right, the wheels are down. I'm landing a plane. I know it's been long, but, but the wheels are down. We're, we're, we're circling the runway. Story I want to share with you and close out. There's a guy named uh, Drew Dyke. He's a Christian writer. He wrote a book called uh, Yawning at Tigers. I don't necessarily advocate the book. That'll make you buy it, of course. But uh, <laughs> I haven't read it, but I've read some excerpts. And, eh, you know, but anyway, there, there's a part in the book on page 54. He tells a very interesting story. I'm sure Drew is a good guy. Um, he tells about a guy from uh, a foreign country. It sounded like the guy must have been from India, but I don't know that for sure. And he lived here in America, though, long enough that he became very Americanized. However, the day came when his parents, living back in their country, I guess India or wherever, uh, they decided that he was supposed to enter into this arranged marriage, you know. So he's Americanized, man, and he wants to date who he wants to date and fall in love with who he wants to fall in love. So he's dreading this, just dreading it. But being a dutiful son, he's going to do his duty to his parents. He's going to honor his parents. And so he buys flowers, and he goes out to the airport, and he prepares himself with great dread to marry this woman he's never seen or met. So he's there, and he's thinking about it, and he's dreading it. And then all of a sudden, she gets off the plane, and he recognizes that this is, you know, the one I'm supposed to be meeting. And everything changes. He goes from hating life and dreading it to Big smile because she's a knockout. She's like extraordinary. Now, this is not a good basis for entering into a marriage, by the way. Just a <laughs> Beauty's only skin deep, somebody said. Uh, but uh, he's completely changed, man. He's converted. He's transformed, you know. Now, Drew Dyke goes back to pick up this theme, and here's what he says. Often we serve God out of obligation. We drag ourselves to church, force ourselves to serve others, but our hearts aren't in it. We're like that guy at the airport, grudgingly holding flowers for God. We're trying to live holy lives because we know we should, but it's burdensome and joyless. He goes on. What can change this? 
His answer, seeing God. When we get a vision of who God truly is, suddenly we are energized. Think in terms of empowered, going from paralyzed to full of power and ability. We're energized to do his mission. Once we gaze upon his grandeur and glory, our sins are forgiven. I love you. I'm for you. I'll go to a cross to prove how much you can trust me. There's his glory and grandeur. It says, obedience ceases to be arduous. Once we grasp his great love, serving is no longer a duty, it's a joy. There's three things we've really got to think about seriously in a message like this. First thing, do you, and this would not be unusual, do you have some insufficiently resolved guilt or totally unresolved guilt? You've tried to resolve it in the wrong ways. Only one way works, and that's accepting what Christ said to this guy, son, daughter, Your sins are, they are forgiven. You just need to come back, just trust your creator. Do you, do you have somewhere buried in your soul? You've tried to suppress them, you've tried all kinds of things to keep yourself distracted, but there's some sin you haven't sufficiently resolved. Second question, are you caught in that Romans 7 cycle and you're thinking that's as good as it gets? That's normal Christian living? You want to do what's God's will, but you find yourself falling short again and again. And you kind of think, hey, I'm no different than anybody else, so I'm not going to get all down on myself. I'm not talking about getting on down on yourself, but I'm talking about at least do some analysis. Because I can promise you there is, a, there is a better way of walking with God. You've got to get your interior motivation all lined up. This goes back to that whole thing of assessing what kind of conversion experience you've had. Third question, and that's the big one. Are you converted? He's saying, Ray, you're insulting me. I, I, I asked Jesus in my heart 25 years ago. I don't care. You don't have to answer to me. Answer to God. If you're converted, good for you. I'm happy for you. But I put on that screen what conversion involves. It involves authentic attraction to Christ for himself. Convictions about God's complete trustworthiness and convictions that sin is always wrong. It's poison. I don't want it. you got deep convictions about that. Third, I become teachable like a child. I am eager to, to get into his word and let his word get into me. And then ongoing life change because whenever Jesus speaks to me in his word, whenever God lays out what I'm to do or not to do, I act on it. That is conversion. Are you converted? Because Jesus said nobody's going to the kingdom of heaven unless they're converted. He said, but man, I've been told all the time that if you come forward at the altar or you pray and ask Jesus in your heart, that's all you need to do. That's legalism. That's silliness. You might, you might be converted in spite of it, but you're not be- converted because of it. So think it through carefully. You have a moment. You have, you have this moment to humble yourself and change it and become converted if you know in your heart of hearts you're not. And that's why your experience has been so um, opposite of what healthy developmental love with God and others should be. All right. We got a lot to think about, a lot to pray about. Let's pray. Father, you know we don't like to think about these things. We don't like to search our own souls. So we pray that you will patiently, persistently bring this back to our attention until we give sufficient attention to it. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.